If you have your Bible with you this morning, turn to Daniel chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have your Bible um, and you need one on the table, sort of in the center back here, there's some Bibles you can use uh, to assist you. You can use your electronic Bible, but we, we highly encourage paper Bibles here, the old-fashioned way. So, Daniel chapter 3. So let's uh, begin by reading, uh, there's 30 verses, but I'd like to read down to verse 25 together to sort of set a context and a framework today for what we're going to be considering. Um, And then we will pray, and then we will uh, jump in, okay? Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits, He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud to you, it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they brought these men before them before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of 
a burning fiery furnace and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats and their trousers, their turbans and their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he arose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and they said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for speaking to us already. And we look forward to what you have for us this morning as we study together and trust that you will meet every heart right where we are, that you will speak to us as a church, that you will speak to us as individuals. And that for those things, those questions, those longings within our heart, that even here in this passage, you would bring something for us to speak, to lead, to guide. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To get the proper context for this story, we need to flip back to chapter 2 just for a moment and understand what was said previously in the vision or the dream that was given to King Nebuchadnezzar. And as we studied this last week, remember, Daniel was brought forward by the Lord to interpret that dream. But that dream, um, as Daniel had explained it, um, just trying to get to it here. He was revealing to him the dream. Here we go. And you, O king, verse 31, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then he goes on to explain that. And so down in verse 37, he said, For you, O king, are a king of kings, and the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, 
and strength and glory. And so he's talking about the fact there that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, by God, was set up to be a great and a powerful king and that he was that, that head of gold. Now, people have suggested, the, the scholars here, there's a, there's a bit of a debate, but just going back to Daniel chapter 1, from Daniel chapter 1 to Daniel chapter 2, there's about a three-year period, and Daniel and his, his three friends, the four of them, had gone through their training that was talked about in chapter 1, their indoctrination. And then from chapter 2 to chapter 3, it is believed that there is somewhere between a 10 and a 20-year time period that has passed. So it's important to know that because here we are now down the path some number of years. And you know how it is with us as people. Sometimes we just forget. We forget things that were said. And there in chapter 2, as the Lord had spoken through Daniel to the king, he told the king that while he was that head, that his kingdom would come to pass. And that in looking at those other four um, elements there, the, the other nations that would come after him. And we looked at those nations last week and what, uh, when they would come. And we briefly looked at the time frames which they came after the king. That the king here, it would seem, in Daniel chapter 3, <clears throat> has likely kind of risen up in pride. And he's building this statue. Some have felt that this statue might be a statue to sort of imitate the gods of their culture, or one of the gods of their culture, but many more feel that it's likely that the king made this statue to sort of imitate himself. And maybe he took that dream that was interpreted to him by Daniel and said, well, if I'm the head, and I'm the head of gold, and I'm powerful, and God has blessed me, why can't I take this thing and run with it? So many believe that the king, as he built the statue, it was really much more of a monument to himself. And that now, because he demands that people bow down and worship this statue, that he's now taken what was political and he's turned it to a religious thing. He's now demanding that people worship his image, worship him. And in so doing, if you think about it, if you can get the worship of people, you can do anything. You have a strong following, you have a mighty kingdom. And rather than develop that following organically and in the right kind of way, he's here trying to sort of force the hand of all the people. And he's saying, you will worship me. And as we, we read down through this here, as, as the king had developed this golden image, and we read here how he called everyone in the kingdom together uh, a number of times it was listed there. In verse 4 it says, Then a herald cried out, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And we're told there in verse 7 that when the people heard the music that they did just that, they fell down. They obeyed the king. They obeyed the, the people who were over them, giving them the orders. And if you can stop and get your head out of this for a moment, and, and hopefully it, 
you know enough about history to think back to periods in history where this same kind of thing has happened. Think back to the 1930s and 40s with Adolf Hitler. In fact, it was interesting as I read, many commentators kind of went back to that and they quoted from that period of history things that happened where people were ordered to, to follow and to worship the Fuhrer. And there are many other examples where such a thing has happened. But the, one of the interesting things here is their integration of music into the decree. And perhaps I don't have to tell you, but music is a very powerful thing. I don't know if you like music. I love music. Uh, going back to my pre-Christ years and all of that before I was really walking with him, uh, I used to go to every concert that came my way, every rock concert of every popular band. And I knew every lyric. And I always laugh when people say, well, I just listen to the music because I like the music, but I don't really pay attention to the lyrics. You know, they go in there. You hear them. And so music is powerful. And Satan, who many believe, as you read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, where those two accounts give us sort of the background on Satan or on Lucifer, Many believe that he was a worship leader in heaven. And that, you know, at the time of his fall, you know, he now has taken one of the things that is so powerful, worship, music, and turned it for his good. In fact, you know, there are some lyrics of songs that, you know, you listen to, to this music, uh, and it's not just today. I mean, it's really been throughout history where, where the music is just evil. The lyrics are evil. And yet, sometimes people don't listen to that. They think, oh, the tune is catchy, and they kind of enjoy that. And so we have to be careful. I think one thing we should point out here this morning is we, we need to be careful the music that we listen to. And whether that's, you know, on your car radio or on your playlists, on, you know, Spotify or Pandora or Apple Music or whatever you use these days to listen... You know, there's algorithms in there that say, based on this thing that you liked, we're going to play some of that as well. We're going to throw this mix in there. And, and I've had it happen so many times where I'm like, no, I just want to hear this artist because I know they're good. I, I, I've, I've vetted them. I know that they, they've got good lyrics and good music. But then the algorithm takes over. And all of a sudden I'm listening and something's playing. I'm like, what is this? I don't want to hear that. But, but you see, that's the way of the world. It's the way of Satan to take music and use it in such a way that it touches our soul. And that's the thing about music. Music touches, it goes past your brain to your heart, to your soul. And so, you know, I was thinking about this as well, and I'll reveal my age here a little bit. But, you know, I can think of all these jingles through the years for commercials. You're, you're probably going to hate me for this because you will be thinking about this all day. Uh, Oscar Mayer Wiener. My baloney is a first name. So, okay. So there's lots of little jingles like that, right? That you've, you've heard. And, and I haven't heard those for years, but if I hear them, boom, bam, they're, they're right there back at the forefront of my mind. So we need to be careful because music is powerful. Music has the ability to call forth uh, an emotional response. So it's important. Here, it would seem that the enemy, in my mind, Satan is behind this. Uh, using the king as a, as a vassal to do this, has now taken music and he said, whenever this music falls, when you, 
uh, plays, whenever you hear it, and the implication in the language is not just, let's say the music was like a minute long, that sometime within that minute you should bow down. No, the implication is, is the second you hear the first note of that music, everybody should drop. And that's to exert control, it's to let people know, if you don't immediately fall down when you hear that first note of music, man, you're in big trouble. And so here is the king. He's built this, this golden statue, and we're told it's, uh, if you play out the cubits, it's basically around 90 feet tall and around 9 or 10 feet wide. And he set it up out on the plain on the south of the city for all to see. So coming from a long distance away, you would see this great statue, a nine or so story tall statue. So during the time when this happened, going down through verse 7, the people, the nations, the languages, they fell down. Some of the Chaldeans observed that Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not. Now, you might want to ask the question, where is Daniel? We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, most people believe that he was likely away on the king's business, but there's no way to know because he's not mentioned and we are not told. But it's interesting to think that way. Uh, we'll come back to that again in a minute. But here, these three friends of Daniel are here. And they were observed by the Chaldeans that they did not fall down. They did not bow down. They did not worship. And so they came to the king. And they said, oh, king, live forever. And they came to, to make it known to the king that they did not fall down. And they remind the king in verse 11. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And it would seem that these Chaldeans had a thing for these three Jewish young men who by this age are probably around 30. And remember when they were taken captive, when they were brought to the city, they were chosen as the choicest of young men and that they were regarded to be bright and trainable. And, you know, if we could get these guys who were probably descendants of royalty and turn them and convert them to be Babylonian and teach them the language and make them dress and and act like a Babylonian, that we've won them over, we've changed them, and we can tell the world and tell others that our God is bigger than your God and our God beat your God because you have been brought submission to, uh, in submission to Babylon to serve us. And yet, as we, we read that, they went through the training and they were favored uh, by the, the eunuchs who were watching over them. And then at the end of chapter 2, as Daniel had interpreted the dream and fallen into the good graces of the king, he asked for his friends there at the end of chapter 2, and they were exalted. They were lifted up to a place and they were given great places of prominence within the kingdom. So here we are all these years later, and it would seem that these Chaldeans have been holding a bit of a grudge. That they're not happy with these guys and they're looking for a way to get them out. And so verse 12, the, there are certain Jews whom you have set up over, excuse me, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I could hear them now, I can hear the thoughts, right? It's kind of like when somebody gets promoted at work that has been there two years and you've been there 20 years and how they get promoted over you and you get that kind of jealousy and whatnot going on. And so these guys are probably like, these guys are foreigners. They're not even part of us. They don't worship our gods. And yet they're holding these prominent places. What's up with that, king? So they're looking for a way 
to get rid of them. And they say there in verse 12, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They disrespected you, king. These are your servants in your court and they are defying a direct order. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. So let's stop and pause for a moment because while this is happening to them and they are making a choice as we see as we go through here, not to bow down. Remember back in the very beginning, in chapter 1, where Daniel said he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies? And then we have these three young men with him, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their Hebrew names. And they are there, sort of a, a group of four men who are wholly dedicated to the Lord, and they are following the Lord, and they Uh, Yeah, they might be there in this foreign land, you know, in imprisonment and and being made to serve, but they're not, you know, they've drawn the line. They've said this far and no further. And if it's going to cost us our lives or something, then so be it. So here they are all these years later, and they're being tested. They're being called out onto the carpet. Why? Because they worship the one true and living God, and they refuse to bow to the foreign God. They refused to bow to the false God. And remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I was thinking about this <clears throat> as I was reading this passage in Daniel. Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 13 reads like this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Is it then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven." You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had done this. They refused to fall down. They were not going to worship the false God. They were only going to worship the one true and living God. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage, verse 13, and in fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these three men before the king. And it would seem that the king apparently had a little bit of fondness for these men because remember he had conquered them. He had had his, uh, his uh, managers identify these men and take them through the training. And uh, he had set them up in great uh, positions of prominence and power. And it would seem that maybe he's giving them a bit of a second chance. So he spoke to them, verse 14, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've set up. You can almost hear it in his voice. It's like, you you, you cut me, man. I've trusted you. And he says in verse 15, now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not, if you do not worship You shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? I want you to notice something there in verse 15. In in the middle portion there where it says, But if you do not worship, 
I almost called the, the, the message that title. Because we know that there's the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? And the world is constantly trying to conform us into its image, to squeeze us into its mold. And as you think about what's happening today in our world and in society, it it seems that this, this is happening, right? This has been happening, in my opinion, for a very long time, not just in the past 50 years, that there's this pressure from the world and from society to cause people to conform. You can see it now, right now with the LGBTQ movement, that if you do not uh, agree with and accept those practices, then you will be held in contempt of court, you will be put in jail, and uh, they're trying to make laws, right? They're, they've done it in the military, they've uh, they've done it in many places and, you know, companies all across, you know, certainly the United States, if not the world, are being forced to adopt certain things and certain practices within their corporate culture. And this is, in my mind, a prelude to being forced to worship in some way the things that are not true, that are not of what God stands for and, and what his word tells us. And so, I think the time is coming where, where the back end of verse 15, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. That something like that is coming, whether it be through laws or some other method. And he even says here, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? He has become so puffed up in his pride that he believes no one, no one on earth and no one in heaven can, can defy me. No, who can stand against me? Now, remember back at the end of chapter 2, you know, the king said, um, verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. And so the king at that point acknowledged God but clearly something's happened in his life. We can't really say in New Testament language that he had gotten saved. He was just impressed by what had happened. And so now here he is again. He's kind of back in this same place, maybe in a worse place. And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer him in verse 16, O king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Why? Because going back to chapter 1, it was already settled was already settled in their hearts. You see, in Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are given, it says this in verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. They knew that. They were brought up, they were trained, they were schooled in the Hebrew Scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the Torah, the law of Moses. And so for them to to be at this point in history, you know, as, as people whom the Lord had obviously now brought to this point of prominence in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, and now the king is demanding that he that they worship him, that they worship his God. They said, we don't need to answer you in this. This is already settled for us. Not even a question. Verse 17, if that is the case, 
Our God, whom we serve, we serve our God, not your God. He's able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Verse, six, verse 18, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Isaiah wrote, and I doubt they had this scripture at that point in time, I'd like to read it to you, Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. Isaiah prophesying about the same time. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Um, uh, when, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Sounds like a verse that I would want to name and claim at that moment. As I'm facing the burning, fiery furnace. And just to sort of begin to connect some dots for us here as we continue to move through this passage, let me direct our attention for a moment to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, which is now talking about the time of the tribulation because there are a lot of parallels between what's happening in the time of the tribulation and what's happening in this story. In Daniel chapter 3, Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, For that day, referring to the second coming of Christ, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, that is apostasy, and the man of sin is revealed, that's the Antichrist, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And what Paul is talking about here is what Jesus referred to in Matthew 24, where he says, uh, when Jesus quotes Daniel, and he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet taking place, which is where at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation, when the Antichrist goes into the temple, goes into the most holy place and declares himself to be God and demands that he be worshiped. And here Paul is referring to that in 2 Thessalonians, saying, when you see that happening, it's going to get bad, it's going to get rough. And so here we are, coming back to our story in Daniel chapter 3, where this same thing is happening. It's being, in my opinion, foreshadowed here in Daniel chapter 3. So when these three young men... Declare in verse 18, but if not, let it be known to you that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You see, they knew what was going to happen, right? They had already been told they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. They were going to die. Yet, they had faith in God, didn't they? Verses 17 and 18, our God is able to deliver us. And we know that God is able, don't we? God is able to do anything. But you see, they didn't doubt what God was able to do, but they also didn't fully know if God would do it because God is God and he he will do what he wants. 
And I would say here in verse 18, and this is not my own words, this is someone else's, they were not doubting God's ability that they were submitting to God's sovereignty in making this decision. That they would not bow to a God that was not God. Remember Job said in chapter 13, as he was working his way through the tragedy that had happened in his life, he spoke these words, Job 13, 15, though he slay, slay me, yet will I trust him. Speaking of God. One person said, it took great faith for them to say this, but God brought them to this place of great faith by preparing them with tests in less dramatic areas. In other words, Sometimes we think, well, you know what? If this ever happens to me, I'll do exactly what they did. But you see, they didn't get there overnight in one giant leap. There have to be those victories along the way where as these tests come into our lives, little tests, that we are are saying no, that we're saying yes to the right things, no to the wrong things all along the way because it's those little steps that go up the mountain that lead to the pinnacle. So that when you get to the big dance, when you're in the situation where the spotlight is on and you're being told, recant or else, bow down and worship our God or else, in that moment, we need to have the strength of character and the resolve prepared over time by the victories and the small things that have led to the big thing that we can then stand there and say along with these young men, we will not bow. We will not worship any other God. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Listen to this. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him, that is God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who has the ultimate power? Who has the ultimate sovereignty? It's God himself. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them fails to, excuse me, falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, Daniel's friends were doing this. They were doing exactly what Jesus said here. They weren't fearing. They weren't worried about what might happen. You see, they were free. They were not bound by fear. Somebody wrote this, I'd like to read it to you, and I think it helps speak to where we are, because when you try to put yourself in the situation that they were in, I I, I know that if you're anything like me, you read this and you think, yeah, Lord, that would be me. I would stand in there. I would be strong. But consider these things. In a time of testing like this, it is easy to think of a thousand excuses that seem to justify compromise. They might have said, there's nothing to gain by resisting. Wouldn't we do more good, good by living? 
It's easy to say we, we must live, but in reality, we all must die. So why not die making a stand for God? Another one. They might have said, we are in a different place. You know, in Rome, do as the Romans do. Yet they knew that God has unlimited jurisdiction. We must do more than, quote, perform acts of religious obedience when we have an audience. Another one, they might have said, well, we'll lose our jobs and our standard of living. Often when God blesses us, we make an idol of the blessing and we compromise in order to keep what God gave us. Another one, they might have said, after all, we are not being called to renounce our God. They did not have a super elastic conscience that said, for we are not bowing down to the idol, but only bowing in respect for the king or in honor of the music. Excuses like this are common, but prove the principle that anything will serve as an excuse when the heart is bent on compromise. Another one, they might have said, well, everybody else is doing it. Instead, they cultivated brave personalities willing to stand alone with God. And finally, no, I got two more, sorry. They might have said it is, o- it is only for once and not for very long. Ten minutes just for the king. It's stupid to throw our lives away for ten minutes. These men knew that ten minutes could change an entire life. Ten minutes can chart the course of your eternity. Last one. They might have said, this is more than can be expected of us. God will understand. And it is true that God understands our struggle with sin. He knows our weakness. That is why he loves the sinner and he made provision for the cross, at the cross for freedom and from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. However, knowing that God understands should be a spur to obedience, not a license to sin. And it's easy to think that when this kind of situation confronts us, I mean, I could imagine this easily happening, you know, in a workplace, right? In the not too distant future where you're called into HR and they, they, they lay out something before you and they say, you have to say you agree with this. And you stand there and you say, I can't say that. The God I worship and the Bible that I read says that that's wrong. And, and I'm, not, I'm not the judge. I'm not the one condemning people to hell. But the Bible says if you engage in these practices, that is, that's the path that you're on. Well, you need to recant that and you need to sign this paper that says this or you're going to lose your job and whatever else. And you're like, well, are, are you in that moment, are you gonna, what, this, what are you going to do? These are small things compared to what they were facing because they were facing in that moment losing their lives. And in verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He he liked them. They were in their, his good graces. But now because they have stood up to the king and they have defied him, all of a sudden, boom, his countenance changes. And he spoke and he commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Boy, the rage, the anger. 
And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in, in his army to, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. I, mean, I tell you, I was reading this and all this stuff's flooding to my head. I couldn't help but think of, of Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, and when they heard these things, who the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they heard what Stephen said as he was laying down in the Holy Spirit for them, just the outpouring of God's word. And he was just telling them how, you know, God through Jesus had, had come into the world to save them, but that they had crucified the Messiah and they had, you know, put the Holy One in a grave. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they, were, they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And then it talks about laying the coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And of course... Stephen, in that moment, through that rage, because he had dared to defy their understanding of God and wouldn't believe the way that they wanted him to believe. And yet I think this same thing must have been happening here because now the king has ordered these mighty men to bind them and to cast them into the fiery furnace. And it says in verse 21, these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and other garments. And I imagine... They did that in part because those were highly flammable materials. And hey, man, let's get this, this barbecue started. And they just wrapped them up and bound them with ropes. And they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 22, therefore, because the king's command was urgent, that means he was super angry and they had to get it done lest they ended up in the fire themselves. And the furnace exceedingly hot there were some casualties of war. The flame of the fire killed those men, those who were ordered to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Now you would expect, with a fire like that, in that kind of a furnace, this was a smelting furnace. This thing was, you know, able to contain the fire. This was a huge metal structure. And for these men to come close enough that as they're shoving them in, that they themselves become consumed. You would think if the guys throwing you into the fire die and they're consumed, that the guys that you're throwing into the fire would have been consumed immediately because they're closer to the fire than you are. So they fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Notice the dramatic shift between verse 23 and verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said, yeah, of course, king, it was three. We counted them, one, two, three. Molary, Curly, they were thrown into the fire. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Now, how could a pagan king who hates God recognize who the son of God is? But it be God himself in a divine moment revealing the son of God. 
Not a son of God, not an angel, the son of God. This is what we call in the Old Testament, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting here, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says of Daniel 3.24 that Nebuchadnezzar's attention was caught when he heard the men singing praises in the furnace. And we can imagine that the king had them cast in the furnace and didn't intend to look twice, believing they would be immediately consumed. And as he walked away with a satisfied look on his face, he was immediately stopped by the sound of singing coming from inside the furnace. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. This is in the Septuagint. But if it were true, wouldn't it be fitting, given that they, through music, were demanded to fall down and worship the king, yet here they are in the midst of the fire, if it's true, singing. And it kind of makes sense because don't you remember what happened to Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi? What happened to them? They're, they're in stocks and bonds in the middle of the night in the worst part of the prison after they had been beaten and you know, told, hey, stop preaching in the name of Christ. And they're there doing what at midnight? Singing praise to God. That kind of makes sense to me. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke saying, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Boy, his tune changed real quick, didn't it? Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. Now let's point out something here. When they were bound and they were thrown into the furnace, the only thing that burned was their bonds. And at risk of reaching a bit, I'm going to say this. When we go through deep, fiery trials, they often liberate us from the things that bind and constrain us. Because we finally put in perspective who God is. We finally see him for who he is. And those things that we thought were important or those things that we feared, all of a sudden, it's like the, the wind coming in and blowing out the fog and all of a sudden it's a clear sunny day and now you can see clearly and you can understand clearly and you can breathe deeply. So don't fear and don't try to avoid trials and tribulations and temptations and, and fiery furnaces because God has a way of using those things to free us and to build us up and to encourage us and to strengthen us. You see, we, should, we shouldn't assume that these kinds of things should be avoided at all costs. You know, when it happens, we have to, in a sense, we have to go with the flow. We have to entrust ourselves into the hands of the living God and say, God, it's like I fell off the boat. I'm in, I'm in a class five rapids going down a river. What can you do? You're just like, God, please help me. Please get me through this. Please provide a, a branch or something that I can grab onto or someone to come along with a hook and rescue me from the river. Or, you know, you, you pray. But God is the one who is in control. Remember, they entrusted themselves to God's sovereignty. So they came out. I want to direct your attention for a moment to Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. 
to a couple of veiled references there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, as the, the person writing the book of Hebrews had just been going through and listing all the names of people, these unlikely characters, and they're being listed as, as heroes of faith. He comes to verse 32 and he says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. It's a reference to Daniel. We'll get to that in a few chapters. Verse 34, quenched the violence of fire. That's a reference to our boys here in this story. Escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get an honorable mention here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34, because of what they did. Verse 27, and the satraps, the administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. It's amazing to me that I can cheat, go through McDonald's and get home and my wife can smell it on me. (laughs) All right. We'll, We'll talk later, Dave. But here these men were in this fire, right? Not singed. They didn't come out smoking. There's no smoke coming off their clothes. They don't even smell like smoke. And yet, I mean, think about this now. The furnace was heated up seven times. It was already hot enough before, but it was heated up seven times. The men who went to throw them in, they got burned. They were consumed by the fire. And these three men, as they were pushed and shoved in, fell down immediately, probably their, their bonds, their ropes were just burned off and they stood right up. And as they stood up off the ground, there's Jesus in the fire with them. And you wonder, right? This is one of those conversations is like, I want to know what they talked about. I want to know what Jesus said to them. Did he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Did he say, good job, boys? You trusted in me. Your faith was not just in God. Your faith was in me. Here I am. I'm with you. Reminds me of the time as we went through the book of Acts where Paul wrote and he said, you know, there stood by me this night an angel of the Lord. And then at other times when Jesus himself stood with him and said, do not fear, Paul. I have many people in this city. And I love how Jesus comes alongside them in the fire. You see, I think we have the wrong idea that we always expect that he's going to deliver us from the fire. Now, he might, and Jesus did. But like they said, but, what, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to do the right thing. We're still going to honor the Lord. We're going to be true to him. We're going to follow Jesus. And I love how Jesus met them in the fire. Nothing was affected. Their body, you know, you think about smoke inhalation, right? Nothing. God protected their lungs from the heat that would have singed their their lung tissue. 
God protected them from you know, the smoke. He protected them from everything. They, they walked in and walked out as if nothing had happened. It was just a walk in the park because God was with them. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, spoke saying, and look at how we, you know, just boom. This guy is like, I don't know. He's all over the map. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel, at least he acknowledges that, and delivered his servants who trusted in him, not my God. And they have frustrated the king's word. I mean, this is coming from the lips of the king. And yielded their own, yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own God. I think you guys ought to underline verse 28. This should be our goal. This should be where we want to live. And right after you underline verse 28 of Daniel chapter 3, if you don't have it already underlined in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You see, if you want an illustration of what Romans 12:1 is talking about, it's right here in Daniel chapter 3. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world. Here, illustrated again in Daniel chapter 3. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. These are the little steps along the way. Like going back to chapter 1, where we have determined ahead of time who we are and how we will respond before we get there. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, the 10 minutes that could have changed these young men and and set their path in a different direction had they bowed down when the music played, in this same 10 minutes, something different happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And again, this is someone's perspective and I'll share it with you, but I was blessed by it. This whole account illustrates perhaps serving as a type of the future of Israel during the Great Tribulation. Nebuchadnezzar is like the Antichrist who forces the whole world into one religion of idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar's image is like the image described in Revelation 13 that the whole world will be commanded to worship. The fiery furnace is like the Great Tribulation which will be great affliction for the Jews. The three Hebrew men are like Israel who will be preserved through the tribulation. The executioners who perished are like those in league with the Antichrist whom Jesus will slay at his return. The mysteriously absent Daniel is like the church, having been raptured out, not even present during this time of the tribulation. I think that this chapter is a foreshadowing, pointing to the days and the times of the book of Revelation. However, to come back to what Nebuchadnezzar may have learned during this time, he certainly came to the place because he confessed it, that their God was the God of, uh, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was the one true and the living God. He learned that he is the God who sends a Savior because he saw him with his own eyes. 
he saw that he is the God of great power because he delivered him, his servants from an impossible situation where he saw his own men die and yet these men lived. He is the God worthy of trust because they trusted in him. He is the God worthy of full surrender because he frustrated the king's word. He is the God who demands exclusive allegiance, meaning that they should not serve nor worship any other God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar knew a lot about God, yet he didn't really know God. And we'll find out as we continue through the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar went down hard. In verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. Boy, that's a 180. And their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then once again, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. (coughs) What an amazing story. This is a story not just relegated to the Sunday school with kids. Like everything in the Bible, this is real, this is true, it really happened. And God did this. And I think this story, at least in part, should inspire in us the confidence to trust in God the same way that they did. That when we get into impossible situations, like they were in, when they were tested and tempted to compromise with the world and to bend their knee to a foreign God in order to preserve their own lives or to preserve their standard of living or whatever it might have been, in that moment they said, no, we will honor God. We will not bend our knee to any other God. I think it also helps us to think about what is it that we worship? Because I think in our culture, it's so subtle. With the internet, with our, our phones and our iPads and our computers, I mean, we, we can have things delivered to, to our mind almost instantaneously when they happen. And because we don't really know, and I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I, I don't really know who to trust. As far as the news goes, There's no one channel that I can look at and say, these people absolutely have it right. Because there's a narrative, right? And, and, you know, there was a day, probably 50, 60, 70 years ago, where the news was a little bit more trustworthy, where, where there was a standard in journalism where they just presented the facts, like just here's what happened, as opposed to putting a spin on it. But this is all part of what I believe the Antichrist is going to use and is using to hold people captive and to brainwash the world. And so we have to be aware because because these things are leading us in a direction and they're preparing us. They're tilling the soil of our hearts to try and get us to the place where when the thing happens, when we're standing before the king or when the, the option or the decision is presented to us, that in that moment we'll choose unwisely, that we'll choose the path of Satan as opposed to the path of God. And this is why it's so important for us to stay close to the Lord, to be in his word. 
We've talked so many times about the counterfeit, right? How do you recognize the counterfeit? Well, the, the U.S. Treasury agents are not uh, educated by studying the, the counterfeits. They're educated by studying the one true thing, that they know the one true thing so well that they immediately recognize the counterfeit when they see it. And that principle, I believe, applies to us with God's word, that we know this so well that when the counterfeit appears, we immediately recognize it and we're able to reject it. Who do you worship? What do you worship? I hope it's the one true and the living God. I hope you aren't being led astray and led captive through social media and the news and whatever else into areas that we shouldn't be in. I hope that when the time comes and we are tested in such a way, and I believe all of us will be tested in in multiple ways, and maybe not this extreme, but we will be tested, that we will learn from this all the way back to chapter 1 to settle these things in our hearts. And how do we do it? We do it with the truth of God's word. We let, we let this book inform our understanding and inform our belief so that we know the faults when we see it and we can choose the real thing so that when the music plays, we will not fall down at the feet of the golden statue, but rather we will stand and say, I will only worship the one true and the living God. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. And as we come now to the time of the table, we just look forward to celebrating and worshiping you, Jesus, and remembering how you came and you redeemed us to set us aside for the Father to bring us into his presence that we might fall down before the only person in the universe who is worthy. And so, Lord, we come to worship you this morning. We bless you. We thank you for this time. Lord, if there are any among us or listening who maybe have never come to to you, Jesus, they've never been saved, they've never been born again, then we pray that this would be the moment for them where they bend their knee willingly to the one true and the living God. And that they would humble themselves and like the Philippian jailer when he ran in and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That that would be you right now. That you would come and humble yourself before God and say, Lord, I want to be forgiven. I want to know this love, this grace, this mercy. I want to walk in truth. And if that's you this morning, just reach out to him, speak to him, ask him to cleanse you, to come into your life and to make you his son or daughter and he will do that and he will do it in an instant. And if you do that this morning, would you let us know so that we can pray with you and give you a Bible and encourage you. And Lord, as we come to your table, lead us to the footstool of grace that we might receive grace and help in our time of need. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.